the inspiration behind all Scripture. We acknowledge that today. And today we ask as we focus on vision, Lord, that you would help us to learn and to grow. Apply it to us on a personal level. Lord, even some of us that are uh, in leadership roles in organizations, that we would learn something about how to uh, take vision and make it a part of our companies, our organizations. And uh, Lord, we also pray not only as individuals, but Lord, we also focus on the vision of this house and what you called us to do. We ask this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. We are in the midst of a 50 Days of Focus series of messages, and we focused on different things. We focused on building a godly legacy. We focused on stewardship. We have focused already, uh, even last week, on sacrificial giving. And today, we're going to focus on vision, on vision, all right? So what I want to do is talk to you this morning about vision. I I heard many years ago this story. Uh, All of you are familiar, if you haven't done any reading, about biographical reading, about the life of Walt Disney. Surely you know that he was one of the most creative, imaginative geniuses of our time, right? And uh, just to dream up the stuff that he did uh, for Disneyland and then Disney World uh, is amazing. And now, of course, Disney's spread out, and they're a huge uh, corporate conglomerate, aren't they? But back in the day, it was Walt Disney himself. He was the originator. He was the visionary leader behind the whole concepts of Disneyland and Disney World. Now, it was said that um, after he had passed away, uh, the, the plans were already in motion for the construction of their second location, which, of course, is in Orlando, called Disney World. And the plans were already made, the architectural work. And, and all of you know, if you've been there or you've just read stories, it, it is just an amazing uh, feat just to think the engineering feat, the architectural imagination of that place, right? Well, he passed away before they opened the doors to Disney World and all of the, uh, all the aspects of Disney World. So at the dedication of Disney World, uh, someone made this comment as they were dedicating it and opening up the doors, and someone made this comment, one of the employees, they said, isn't it so sad that Walt Disney didn't live to see this? And at that time, the creative director of Disney Studios was standing there next to the employee, and he said, oh, he did. And that's why it's here. Walt Disney had a vision. He was inspired with his dream to build something for these families and for children, and he did it. And what you see is the result of vision. I think sometimes we forget. Anything that is great or significant, we forget that it started with a dream. Accomplishments, enterprises, institutions, ministries, churches, they all begin with a vision and a dream from God. Having a dream When I say a dream, I literally mean a vision for the future. That is absolutely essential to lead people to accomplish anything of great significance. And um, I remember hearing the story many years ago of uh, Helen Keller, who many of you know was one of the pioneers for both the hearing and the vision impaired. And um, uh, she, of course, was blind, and and, uh, she had already begun to be on a speaking circuit. And one of the reporters Uh, hit her up after one of her presentations and said to her, uh, Ms. Keller, what in in the world would ever be worse than being blind? 
Now, I don't know about you, I thought it was a tacky question. But anyway, so it goes with reporters sometimes. But they said, what, what would ever be worse than being blind? Helen Keller paused for a moment and she said this. She said, what would be worse would be to have sight, but no vision. She was a woman with real vision. She didn't have natural eyesight, but she had the vision to look into the future, see something that needed to be accomplished. You know, the Bible speaks to the subject. We all are familiar with the verse, and maybe sometimes we, uh, we quote it in its King James Version and we miss the true meaning of it. In Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18 says, where there is no vision, the people, we're used to quoting it how what? The people what? They perish. Sometimes when we read that, we think where there's no vision, people die. That's not what the language means at all. It literally means where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. In other words, there's absolutely no controls. There's no order. There's total chaos. It's like a bunch of scattered wild horses without a vision that keeps us on track. Without a vision. God's people get scattered, don't they? Without a vision, there truly is no progress. I thought it might be helpful just to start off with understanding what we mean when we say vision. Different people define it differently. So let me just suggest to you a definition that we'll use for today. And this is a definition that typically used in a ministry leadership setting. We talk about the idea of vision. We mean this. It is a God-given, just stop right there. Who gives it? God. I'm not talking about those ideas you have in the shower on a, you know, when you, when in the morning you're showering, you have some little idea. Now that could be God, may not be, but I'm not even talking about just a vision that you sort out and a dream that you work out. I'm talking about something that's given by God that he bursts on the inside of someone. It is a God given mental picture of a preferred future. Would you notice that it's future oriented? Would you notice that it also has to do with a mental picture? Vision, the very word, is a seen word. It is a mental image. It is an inward image of a preferred future. A vision has to do with something that is in the future that you want to see come about, and it is better than today. It's a better result than today. I love the quote by Bill Hybels that says this, vision is simply a picture of the future, but it produces a passion in the now. There's something about having a a vision for the future because it will actually change the way you act and behave today. Can you imagine what it is like, and many of us can because we've been there and we know people who are there, to live life with absolutely no dream, with no vision. No vision for where you're going. No, no future, preferred future that's, that's on the inside of you that you can see and that you're running towards on a regular basis. That is a sad thing. But unfortunately, happens to a lot of people and to even to organizations. So that's what we talk about. When we're talking about this, this God-given mental picture. I like what John Stott, the great British pastor and author, uh, said. He said. He said, it is... An act, vision is an act of seeing. It is an act of seeing. We see what it is, but do we see what it could be? So don't just look at things as they are, but with vision, with the eyes of vision, you can see what things could be. Now, obviously, it has to do with something that God gives, and it has to do with the future, and it gives us something that really changes the way we act and behave today. 
It might be helpful before we turn to God's Word and the example that I'm going to use today from the book of Nehemiah. It might be good for us just to take a moment and understand why vision. What's the big deal about it? Well, I could probably give you about 10 different purposes for vision or benefits of having real vision, but I thought I would just limit it to three for the sake of this morning. All right, ready for these? Number one, vision provides purpose. It provides purpose. Without a vision, you can wander around without any sense of purpose of what you're all about. The great British historian Arnold Toynbee once wrote that the greatest threat to society is apathy. That's kind of an interesting perspective, isn't it? That the greatest threat to society is apathy. In other words, what? People just don't care. How many think that, I mean, that was written many, many years ago. I think I see a lot of apathy today in people's lives and around the world, and there's all different kinds of reasons for it. But he said this. He said there was one primary antidote for apathy. He said it's a vision that takes the imagination by storm. If you have a vision on the inside that will literally take your imagination by storm, in other words, it's got to be compelling. If it's compelling, it will actually oppose apathy. How can you go through life with a who cares, I don't care attitude if you're walking daily with a sense of vision? Vision gives us purpose. Not only does vision give us purpose, but it also gives us direction. I often tell people vision is all about destination. When you hop on a train, a metro, a bus, It's very important that you make sure that you check out the little line on the top of the bus that tells you where it's going. Because if you get on the wrong bus, go in the wrong direction, you're going to be disappointed when you arrive. Any of y'all know what I'm talking about? I've done it, I promise you, all right? So you always have to make sure you know what the destination is. When you become a part of a church, when you become a part of an organization, when you create a company as an entrepreneur, you need to make sure that it's clear where you are going. What your destination is, is what your vision is. Your personal vision tells us where you're going. It tells us your direction and hopefully your destination. And it's also true on a corporate level as well. It's like the rudder of a ship. It's like the roadmap. And without without a functional GPS, we're lost, aren't we? Right? So we all need to have vision for our life both personally as well as corporately. Third purpose of vision is vision promotes unity. There's something about vision I've noticed through the years that has this cohesive galvanizing effect upon people. If you can get a group of people to buy into a vision and own that vision, really get a hold of it, my gosh, it all of a sudden brings them, brings them together and causes them to fight for the same thing and head the same direction because vision will actually promote unity. If you can get a bunch of ball players who are so locked in on a vision of winning their conference championship, they have a greater chance of actually winning that championship. Why? Because it promotes unity. It promotes a single-mindedness. And so uh, if if, if we want to really do something great for God, we have to have a vision, and hopefully that vision also promotes a cohesive, galvanized, single-mindedness, and we're all working together 
towards the same objective. So those are some purposes of vision. I think they're applicable to both personal as well as, as business, workplace, or even in a church situation. All right, you ready to go to God's Word? Just gave you some general stuff about vision, but let's go to God's Word and look at a, a great example, and, and this probably uh, Mr. Nehemiah deserves a six-week series, all right? But we're just going to give him, we're going to give him about six or eight minutes, all right, here together this morning. So Nehemiah in the Old Testament is a great example of a visionary leader. In fact, there's many leadership principles that you can glean from reading the book of Nehemiah. And if it's been a while since you've done that, I challenge you, go back and reread Nehemiah. There's so many good things that you can glean from him. But basically, let me just tell you the story. The people of God were in exile, okay? They had been in exile for quite some time, and things weren't so good back in Judah. But Nehemiah was serving, uh, he was serving Artaxerxes as king. And he was in this foreign land serving this Gentile, unbelieving king as the cupbearer to the king, all right? So one day, the Bible says that uh, he received a report from some of his, uh, from some of his fellow uh, Jews. And when they brought the report to him, they said, oh, man, things are not good back home. Things are really bad. They said, uh, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they're in great trouble and disgrace. They said, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned. Now, why would that be a big deal? Why would the fact that the walls were down, why would that be such a big deal? Because during that day, if you didn't have walls, you had no security system. You have absolutely no guarantee of safety. In fact, you, you could pretty well chalk it up. You're going to be under attack. And your lives may be short-lived. And so as a result, uh, having a wall was really important for the people. But they said the walls are torn down, all the gates are burnt down and destroyed, and everyone's discouraged, and the people are in great trouble and disgraced. And I love to watch Nehemiah's response to this report. Listen to what he said. It says, it says in verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. When I heard these things, I just sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And it proceeds to give us in the balance of chapter 1 his prayer. I thought it might be helpful rather than trying to tell you the entire story, which I couldn't do this morning. I just picked out some key points in him getting started towards his vision being fulfilled. And it began with the text that I just read to you, and it begins with what? Usually, usually, getting a vision usually begins with sensing God's heart about something. I know some people don't like calling it a burden because that has a little bit of a negative ten, uh, you know, uh, sound, uh, but I just mean the word burden as a sense of the heart of God that is pointing towards a need. So Nehemiah's heart, was broken when he had the news about the, the city, the people that he loved, and his heart broke. And what was he doing while he was praying and crying and fasting, calling out to God? What was God doing? God was putting a burden on his heart. Many times a call of God begins with a burden of God. And he began to receive the heart of God for the condition of his people. And then we see it progressing in chapter 2. We see it progressing in the second point that I put here is he received a vision from God. So he goes in front of the king 
that he's serving. And uh, the king said, there's, there's something wrong with you today, Nehemiah. Because I never see you sad. I never see you discouraged. And I can just tell by the way you're looking today, you're not normal. Something's not right. He was showing it. Y'all been there before? Yep. You can just show it, right? And so the king said, what's wrong with you? And so Nehemiah began to tell him what was bothering him. And, the king, and he told him what, this, what the report was. And the, then the king said this. It's just amazing to me how God would so coordinate um, his plan through an unbelieving Gentile king, right? So the king says, well, what do you want to do about it? Now, that tells me he had favor before the king, didn't it? He said, well, what do you want to do about it? And so when he asked him the question, Nehemiah began to say, well, what I really want to be able to do is I want to release. I want to work release. I'd like to go back to Jerusalem and see what I can do to help fix this problem. And guess what? The king released him to do that. And didn't just release him, which brings up the next point. He actually enlisted the help of the king. And the king also gave him, gave him networking uh, connections, and he went and was able to get materials and resources from other people. So one of the things that visionary leaders do is not only do they have a sense for God's heart and get a burden about something from God, but secondly, they, they have a vision. Vision comes from God. And then once you have a vision, you have to do something with it. Sometimes we stop right there. We have a vision for God. We're not willing to take faith steps to do anything about it. And then he began to actually enlist the help of other people. This is what I call the power of the ask. The power of the ask. And he was asking. He asked for permission to leave. He asked for things. And the king gave it to him. And then we notice that in addition to asking for his help, then later we see that he actually developed a plan. Nehemiah was building step by step, and then he went to Jerusalem. And the scripture says that at night, uh, he and a small group of people, they went and they did a survey, reconnaissance mission, gathering intel about everything that was going on with Jerusalem. I'm sure they were jotting down notes of what gates needed to be replaced and what the condition was of that section of the wall and what happened over at the fountain gate or what about over here, what about over here. He did a complete 360-degree analysis of the city, the walls, and the condition, and he came back with a decision of what he needed to do. He developed an action plan. Now, I know some of you are so spiritual. I know you're so spiritual. You never think about an action plan. But I'm here to tell you, it's not unspiritual. Can I hear an amen? Someone say. It's not unspiritual to have an action plan. We develop strategic plans based upon the vision that God's given to us, and we always keep it, allow God to change it as we're working through it too, right? But he developed an action plan of how to get the job done. And then he did what? He built a team. Then he gathered together his, his family and the, the Jews that were living there, uh, approximately 50,000 that were living there at the time in exile. And he began to talk to them about the conditions. He said, we got to do something about this. No one else had ever done anything about it. Nobody else had ever had a vision from God to take action. He said, I've got a plan. Who's with me? Can I just read you quickly from uh, chapter 2, verses 17 through 18? Listen to what it says. He said, then I said to them, you see the trouble that we're in in Jerusalem. It lies in ruins. And its gates have been burned with fire. Come. Listen to this recruitment. Come. Let us rebuild 
the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told him about the gracious hand of God upon me and what the king had said to me. So he told him, he gave him the story, told him the background. This is where this this idea just didn't pop up. One day, God began to speak this to my heart. I have something from God, and I've got permission from the king. And then they replied. How they replied? And they said, let us start rebuilding. Boy, don't you wish everybody you were trying to lead was that responsive, right? Amen. We're with you. We're with you, Nehemiah. Come on. What can we do? Let's start this project now. And with a heart of agreement, they jumped in and started the project. Now, I didn't put this here because I didn't want to, you know, digress with too much time on this. Can I just point out, when you begin to reread Nehemiah, you'll find out something very, very clear over the next couple of chapters. The building of the, uh, of the rebuilding of the walls and the gates of Jerusalem was completed, by the way, in record time. But it wasn't without major opposition. If you follow a vision from God for your life, individually or corporately, you can bank on the fact you're going to have opposition. If you think it's just going to go super smooth, there's not going to be any bumps along the road, everything's going to be easy, everything's going to be great, you're kidding yourself. You're deceived. Because immediately, the moment he gathered the people around and they started to come together to do something, immediately the enemy attacked. And, and I don't have time to delineate all the different types of attacks that were used, but you can go and look at them, and you can see it was just a constant battering of attack to try to get at Nehemiah and to discourage the people and to talk them out of what God had given them the chore to do. Did you know, even when you have a vision from God, the enemy will try to steal it from you? Even with the dream and a vision that God has put in your heart, the enemy will do everything he can to put obstacles in your way to keep you from achieving it. So these are kind of some of the steps that Nehemiah went through, and he develops this plan, and they built a team, and they got the job done. Praise God. What a wonderful story, and I do encourage you, read it on your own. Now, here's what I'd like to do very quickly. Can I just tell I want to relate this biblical example of a vision, a visionary leader, and how vision was conceived and then ended up resulting. Can I relate that just on a corporate level? Because we're during this time of uh, 50 days of focus. I really want to focus on vision today for you on a personal level, but I also want you to relate it and apply it to our church family. It's six years ago right now that Carrie and I began to sense we had actually been living in this North Suffolk area Uh, At that point, we had already been living here for about 12 years, I think. It was just about that. And uh, I had continually, for several years, had this sense and this burden that there was a need for a spirit-filled, life-giving church in this area, right here, right in this target area that we're sitting in, in what I simply call the Highway 17 corridor. And I just couldn't get rid of it. And in fact, I tried to recruit people to come and plant the church. I said, we'll do this for you, we'll do this for you, we'll do this for you. Couldn't talk anybody, couldn't pay anybody to do it. And I'm just frustrated with it. I'm like, well, Lord, it must, just, it must not be you. But I couldn't get rid of that sense, that burden. And as I came off from a traveling ministry and, and became put my roots down a little bit more and spent a little bit more time here in Hampton Roads, it wasn't long before the Lord began to speak to Carrie's 
heart and my heart. He began with me. It took care about six months to get on board. Anyway, so he began to speak to me. And what he told me was, he said, you remember, you know, he was just, we were talking. I was in my hot tub. That's where God speaks to me. Anybody else have, you have a place God speaks to you? All right. So I'm in my hot tub. Yeah, hot tub ministry. And uh, so I'm in there and alone, and the Lord's just speaking to me. And, I, and he said, you know, that, you know that burden that you've had? Yeah. I'm thinking he's going to give me a name, you know, someone to assign and to go recruit. And the Lord said, you're going to do it. Well, you can imagine we had a, a lengthy dialogue about that. <laughs> At 58 years old, we had a discussion. You know, and uh, I wasn't I wasn't really excited about it. And I was like, God, you, you, you got to be kidding me. You know, I can't do that. I've done that. Been I, what was this? And the Lord just continued to minister to me over the next few weeks. And I began to develop a very clear sense of assignment, call and vision of what this church would become over the years. And of course, after that, we began to kind of follow this same pattern. Actually, we, we enlisted the help of some other people. We developed an action plan. We began to gather together a core of people, about 20 people, and we began to meet together uh, every other Wednesday night and then later launched our uh, Saturday night public services uh, in 2012, and then uh, it went on from there. But the point of the matter is that, that this, is, this isn't just theoretical stuff. This isn't just you know, a Bible example, it happens in real life. And it's actually the same way that God planted a vision for this house in my heart. Uh, now, I have an opinion when it comes to vision and uh, visionary leadership, and that is that generally speaking, and I would say exclusively true, but I'll give room for an exception. Generally speaking, God doesn't give vision to committees. He gives it to a man or a woman, and he puts a dream and a vision in their heart. Now, he then, they function in a plurality and a team, but rarely do you find God giving a God-given vision to a committee. And in fact, if Jesus would have relied upon his committee, they would have talked him out of going to the cross. Isn't that right? They, they, oh, no, they would have voted, oh, no, Jesus, you're not going to the cross. But he had a vision from God, his father. He knew exactly what he was called to do, and he did it. So I thought it was a good moment for me just to refresh you on what the vision of this house is. And, and so I've put, I'm going to put it up here in a statement format, and then I'm just going to put it in kind of a three-fold approach just to refresh your memory. Or Some of, your life, some of you member, new members are like, we, didn't we just learn that, Pastor? We just did that. Well, this is just a good refresher for those who weren't in that class, all right? So the statement is written this way. We exist, Riverbend Church exists, to be a biblically functioning church. Each of these phrases are packed with meaning, but we'll just read it, all right? To be a biblically functioning church where we build people, train leaders, and reproduce churches to change the world resulting in a regional church with a global impact for Christ. That's our vision statement. And so you say, well, why is that important? Because that's destination. Now, our mission, how we do that, that that's a different story, and, and, and how we go about that, uh, connecting and growing, serving and going. But this is our vision. This is our destination. This is where we're going. And just to kind of put it in a threefold organized form, if you want to just simplify it, number one, it's about making disciples. 
Number two, it's about maturing leaders. And number three, it's about multiplying churches. Maybe this is best expressed. Uh, I found that sometimes vision is a little bit hazy and people don't quite understand what you're getting at until you actually convert it to translatable goals. This is a goal. This is something we're going to reach towards. So I thought I would just share with you very quickly some of our goals, all right? This is actually written up in our, in our uh, legacy campaign booklet, but I know some of you haven't necessarily read all of it. So uh, let me just take the pleasure of mentioning this, and I won't, I won't belabor any of the points. But just so you can, I, I'm hoping what you'll begin to do is your, your vision will kind of be enlarged. Uh, a couple of uh, Sundays ago when we went and we met out here under a tent on our property, and then we prayed together, and then we had a prayer walk, I had a number of people come up to me after our prayer walk, and they said, Pastor, that was the first time I saw it. I saw it. I saw what God wanted to do. Well, there's nothing there, but they were seeing the vision by just prayer walking on site with insight. They were prayer walking, and they began to see what God was doing. So let me just highlight these very quickly. Number one, we have a goal of helping 1,000 people in the 757 region come to Christ in the next 10 years. People come to Christ, rededicate their life, be born again uh, over the next 10 years. That is not an unreasonable goal by any means. None of these are like out-of-hand, unreasonable goals. The second one is we have a heart for discipling, making, not just making converts, disciple-making. So we have a goal of discipling 500 new or renewed believers using our, using our First Steps program, which is a one-on-one discipleship program, in the next 10 years. We want to disciple 500 new or renewed believers using that over the next 10 years. You might say, I don't know how possible that is. Well, actually, this year we've actually done what? How many just this year so far? 60? We've already done 70 this year. Can you give Jesus a hand clap? Hallelujah. Yeah. Next one is our goal is to mobilize. Mobilize 20% of our church membership for cross-cultural ministry experience by participating on short-term missions trips. Every year we sponsor short-term mission experiences. And, and my goal is that 20%, and this, my gosh, I'd rather raise this higher. But anyway, for right now, 20%, when we reach the 20%, we'll raise the goal, all right? I want 20% of you to experience cross-cultural missionary experience, whether it's a one week, whether it's a weekend, or whether it's a two week. I'm leading the team along with Steve Young uh, uh, to uh, southern province of, of China, uh, in, the, in March, the end of March, this next year. Uh, we'll have other short-term trips that are taking place in 2019. But the point is we want to mobilize. That's the key word. Can everybody just say mobilize? Mobilize. mobilize. That's a key word. Next one is we want to increase our average weekend attendance to a critical mass of 900 to 1,000 people before 2030. Now, immediately some person is going to say, Pastor, how in the world, in, a, in an auditorium that seats 192 seats in here, are we going to do that? The only way that's going to happen, you can see I, I, I put a date out there of 2030. That assumes that once phase one is completed and we get phase two, which phase two is we raise the money to build a structure over there, that 40,000 square foot facility, I'll, I'll just mention in a second, that's how we're going to get to the 900 to 1,000 people. May I make something very clear? We are not called by God. Every church is different. Every, God gives every church a different vision. We, our church is not called to have a multi-campus, multi-site ministry where we have different campuses and it's all one church. 
Uh, I applaud those who do that. I've been a part of leading that kind of a vision. God has called us to raise a strong, healthy core of Christians here and then send and mobilize and plant churches out of this church. So I like to tell people, we're not called to be a mega church. We're called to be a mobilizing church. I'm not down on mega churches. God bless you. I'm just saying this is what our calling is. So can you imagine if you had a critical mass and that new building is going to seat right at 600, 600 seats in there, if we're able to, to fill that up twice a Sunday, then all of a sudden you're there, right? You have easily, you have a critical mass of that. And that will allow us to do a lot of great things for the kingdom of God. It's our vision to equip and to train 200 leaders through a school of ministry and leadership over the next five years. Early 2019, in cooperation with other Vanguard ministry member churches, we're launching a school called Vanguard Bible Institute. And we'll have, this will be one of our campuses. There'll be a couple other campuses in Hampton Roads area where we'll begin to train people, men and women, who have either a desire to just grow in their knowledge of God and his word or who have a call to function in some area of ministry. And so my goal is that we're going to train 200 leaders over the next five years. We have a goal to send 10 full-time families into global missions in the next five years. We've already sent two uh, households out full-time, and we have a lot more to go. But even over the next five years, to be able to send full-time families into the global mission field. And then to launch four new daughter churches. That means that that third part of the vision to reproduce churches, that means we got to get with the program. We got to launch four new daughter churches in the next five years, and I believe that is reasonable. I also have it in my heart, I've shared with our elder team, uh, and we're just waiting on the Lord's provision, but I have a heart within this next year, actually, in 2019, to launch a Spanish speaking service and outreach as a part of our church here as well. So those, I just wanted to give you some tangible goals to where you can see it's one thing just to talk, you know, kind of general vision. It's another thing to begin to put goals together that can actually make a difference. So here's what I'd like for you to do. Personally, I want us to apply God's word, all right? Prayer teams can go ahead and begin to come forward if you'd like. I want us to apply God's word on a personal level and a corporate level. First of all, I'm going to just ask you some questions so you just, this is between you and God. If you are in a situation, uh, maybe it's on the job, <clears throat> maybe it's God's given to you an entrepreneurial idea of something that you're to start, uh, whatever, or maybe it's a vision for a ministry assignment here at our church, whatever it may be, and you, you know that God has, ha, that, that today God's speaking to you about, I really need to get more clear on my vision. I need to get more clear on the vision that God has for my life. Would you raise your hand and say, God's speaking to me about that this morning? Would you just raise your hand? Hands all over the place. Secondly, could we agree that it would help immensely is as a church of believers that if we would gather our arms together, get in lockstep with the Holy Spirit, that we together with his grace and his help, that we could buy into his vision for this house, and see major progress made to see lives changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the good news of Jesus. How many of you know that we could do that? Would you agree that that would be a helpful step for all of us to take? Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet, please? I want to pray for us. Our prayer teams are here at the front. If you need to make a decision for Christ today, there may be someone here who doesn't know Christ personally or you need to rededicate your life to him. This is an opportunity for you to respond. You simply come and allow one of these prayer teams to pray for you. They'll agree with you. 
If you need physical healing in your body, please, I want you to come and let someone pray with you. If you need a financial miracle in your life or in your marriage or on the job, whatever it may be, this is a moment for you to get agreement in prayer. The Bible says that where two of you agree as to touching something here on earth, it will be done by my Father who is in heaven. We believe that. So you feel free to come and allow someone to pray with you. But I'm going to pray for all of you, and then I'm just going to release you. I'm going to ask that Ariano Munden would just make a declaration of blessing over you, and that will be your signal to be dismissed. But please keep, if you win, just an atmosphere in this room for ministry, all right? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the author of vision and dreams. The Bible is replete with examples. You put a dream in the heart of Moses. You put a dream in the heart of Noah. You gave Ruth the Moabitess a dream. You gave Gideon, Samson, and the other judges and deliverers of Israel. You put a dream and a vision in their hearts. Lord, you gave Abraham a vision that he saw something from a distance, but he saw it. Lord, we thank you that you gave your son, Jesus, clear eyes to see what his assignment was here on this earth. Jesus Christ had great vision. Thank you for Paul and Peter and James and John. Thank you for Timothy and Titus and others that give us the example in Scripture of being a visionary people. Holy Spirit, help deliver us from being scattered like wild horses. Help us to receive and be clear about your vision for our lives individually and for this church body. We invite it. We embrace it. Lord, we thank you now for clarifying for us today how important it is for us to focus on vision. In Jesus' name. All right, would you bless us? I declare over you eyes that see, ears that hear, and a heart willing to obey. May the vision that is placed on your heart bubble forth. May the excitement and the passion drive you towards that goal. And may his anointing fulfill all that he has promised you. In Jesus' name, you are dismissed.